0: The biggest secret of the best traders in the world is that they're just like everyone else. However, they've worked hard to learn the markets and discover what works and what doesn't. But how can you hear about these journeys and get in on the strategies and tactics they use? You can do it by listening to Chat with Traders. Here's your host, Aaron Fifield.
1: What's up, guys? What's going on? Glad you could join me for episode 49. Thank you very much for tuning in. Now, I have a very special guest on the podcast this week who I'm excited to introduce you to. His name is Hayne Bodek, although some refer to him as the Algo Arms Dealer, and I totally understand why. Hayne began his trading career at Hull Trading, a prestigious firm well known for driving forward innovation in the domain of automated trading. Following Hull, Haim then went into significant roles at Goldman Sachs and UBS which are all discussed during the interview. But to further set the scene, in 2007, Haim founded Trading Machines, a high-frequency trading operation, and at the peak, Trading Machines accounted for 0.5% of all options trading volume with a team of 25, one of who was Brian Weiner from episode 40. All was well for a couple years until the beginning of 2009, when trading machines ran into issues and began to bleed money for unknown reasons. Until Haim later discovered, at the root of the problem, were secretive order types being used by a select few firms, giving them an unfair advantage to front-run the orders of other participants. With this discovery, Haim went to the SEC to raise his concern about such order types, and little did he know at the time, that this would be the beginning for one of the most sophisticated and complex investigations carried out by the SEC in U.S. history. So, of course, we speak about all of this in much more detail during the interview. And we also speak about another fascinating topic, which is the payment for order flow. Haymes shares with us what is really happening to your orders after you click the button to buy or sell. And you might even be surprised to find out that a large majority of retail orders never even make it to an exchange. So, just from listening to this interview, you'll quickly realize Haim has an incredible knowledge of market microstructure. And in case you find that some parts are a little technical, then this may be one episode worth a second run. Just while you're listening, I'd love it if you could please leave a brief review on the podcast in iTunes. It's a very quick and easy way to support chat with traders. All you need to do is go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash iTunes and follow the prompts. That will be a huge help. So thank you. All right. It's time. I'm your host, Darren Firefield. This is the Chat with Traders podcast. And please welcome my guest for this week's interview, Haim Bodek. Haim, welcome to the podcast, man. How's it going? Going well. How are you doing? I am excellent. Thank you. And thank you very much for doing this. It's great to be speaking with you. Now, here's how I picture the interview playing out. So, we'll have three major talking points, right? Um, they'll be walking through the roles you've had over the years. So, working at Hull, Goldman, UBS, and of course, trading machines. Uh, and secondly, really keen to get into the topic of blowing the whistle on HFT secretive order types. And then, uh, what's happening to retail order flow? So, if that sounds good to you, uh, let, let's dig into it. Okay. Awesome. So Haim, share with us how you got started in finance and what was it like to work at Hull Trading? Because, I mean, just quickly, from my understanding, they were a very prestigious firm regarded by many as pioneers in the realm of automated trading. So what was that like? Yeah, well, I'm still pretty
2: nostalgic about the experience and I know a lot of my uh, former colleagues also are. Um, I uh, got into Hull um uh, I guess most people who joined the firm probably had unusual backgrounds that were but th- that were relevant. Uh, I started out uh, working uh, under uh, a um entrepreneurial professor named Bob Grossman, uh, doing uh, credit card fraud detection using uh, um, you know machine learning algorithms. Uh, so I was really um, uh, kind of oriented around large data. Detecting uh, patterns, and uh, you got did had some uh, good successes with that uh, with that project with Visa, and uh, at the time uh, there was a lot of hype about using those methods in uh, finance, and uh, it was uh, kind of funny, but there was there was actually an, an advertisement that said, you know, uh, wanted. You know, individual who to use uh, you know machine learning algorithms to forecast
1: markets. So um, so I applied and uh, got the job. Excellent. So what was your role at Hull Trading there? Like what were you doing on a day to day basis?
2: Well, the role changed. I mean, I was very still very green, and Hull was a good uh, environment for. Um, they really focused on taking uh, scientists or other technical types. And, you know, basically grooming them. Um, You know, I was probably in the financial engineering group, one of the stronger uh, programmers. And um, there was a lot of competition for like the pure quant jobs. And uh, I kind of started out, uh, you know, working on uh, machine learning and forecasting. Then I started to work on um, basically the data infrastructure for all the financial engineering models, and eventually that kind of uh, led into a role where I, I was one of the few people who focused on the uh, on on the intersection between uh, you know, what we think of as the three disciplines in the field. So yeah, at Hull, there was basically a financial engineering group, which is the quants. You had a, a technology group where the where the developers, you know, were situated, and then you had trading. Uh, and Hull traded on the floor. I also traded electronically. Um, and my role kind of evolved to be the guy who sat in between those groups. Uh, eventually, um, you know, I, I, uh, it was uh, in, the, in the early 2000s, uh, the role that I had at Hull started to actually have a name. You know, people had a hard time describing what I did, but uh, we call it strategy now. And it's, uh, it's basically... Uh, the the you know the algorithmic trading part of of this type of business. So I started to focus on the you know quite literally the intersection uh, in in terms of how those three functional areas trading, financial engineering, and technology were actually all bound into a system that could execute trades strategically, you know, on the exchanges.
1: Right. Okay. And after Hull was acquired by Goldman Sachs, what happened next? Is that when you went to UBS, or did you stay on at Goldman for a while there?
2: Yeah, I stayed on for for a while. Uh, it was actually pretty interesting and difficult time because uh, uh, Goldman actually um, acquired um, Spear Leads and Kellogg, you know, the very big Nazi specialist operation. And there were there was basically an integration effort uh, between uh, Hull SLK and Goldman, and a lot of people burned out on that. That was a pretty, you know, um, I don't know what the word is, but uh, ambitious uh, integration. And I think the guys who were probably the happiest there were were people who found roles at Goldman that were. Um, you know that leveraged their skill set but wasn't really in the middle of this uh very difficult integration of these businesses um so uh, you actually saw quite a lot of attrition over that period and and um you know uh people from the from the firm ended up se- uh, setting up and, and joining other uh desks and and that's really how the the dna uh got around the street um you know, I joined, uh, UBS after that, a, a group of, of, uh, guys went there and I joined up with that group, uh, and, uh, focused mostly on the U S operation. And in about two years, uh, we kind of replicated the entire, um, kind of business model that we had done at Hull. So it was a pretty successful, um, uh, group. It was called EVT, electronic volatility trading. And, uh, you know, I guess, um, you know, towards the end of my stay there, probably I think the last year and a half, uh, I took over the group globally as co-head.
1: Okay, so that's a pretty major role, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I um, you know, I benefited from from the fact that um, you know the things that I focused on, uh, you know, you know what what we had in the in the mid in the early 2000s mid 2000s options uh, industry is we had um, the markets were basically going from floor-based exchanges to hybrid which was a combination of floor and electronic to purely electronic and they're really um, because um, the the floor ha- was you know primarily how business was conducted in the option space there really weren't weren't a lot of people who did what I did um, I kind of cut my teeth uh, working on European options in in the late 90s and those markets were automated. So, you know, my career, uh, basically, I got a leg up on a lot of the other people because as markets Le- went electronic, you know, a guy who, you know, I mean, you know, what is my task? My task is to put literally um, 300,000 or 400,000 uh, bids and offers across 500 names, you know, hundreds of 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 options per name. Uh, and I have to put the, all those out and um, do it in a manner you know, where uh, we don't lose money. I mean, you think about it, it's about making money, but there's been some pretty big blowups in the options market making space uh, because of how difficult it is to actually trade that many uh, different securities. And react, uh, you know, really within milliseconds to the changing prices of them.
1: Okay, excellent. Uh, that's uh, that's really interesting. Now, this is what I'm really keen to hear more about. So, tell us about Trading Machines. What motivated you to start the firm? How did you go about it? And what type of operation was this?
2: Yeah, well, I, I, I guess... Um, uh, yeah you know, in um, in two thousand seven the options market in in the u s uh had uh, what was known as the penny pilot and there were thirteen names that were um quoted in pennies instead of the the nickel increments that had existed beforehand and uh when I looked at how those names were trading I thought to myself that um you know these this these products were actually quite similar to um you know maybe how the korean market traded and and i came to the conclusion that the way that um market making would operate in in the in the us would necessarily have to change so so basically the um the margins would be so uh thin that uh option market makers wouldn't be able to uh, do traditional bid offer capture um, or spread capture is what we call it sometimes. Um, so I, I kind of came to the conclusion that I was going to have to rebuild and that it was gonna, um, you know, have to be a, um, uh, you know, we, 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 you know, we were fast at the time, but I kind of felt we needed to really pursue the low latency game, uh, harder, uh, than maybe what was possible, um, uh, at a bank, and you know at that time, there were many uh, high frequency trading firms in the in the equities universe that were really pushing the arms race there and uh you know to just kind of give you some more color, it's a very complicated decision I made you know to leave and go do my own firm but um we also had the integration of um stock exchanges and and option exchanges the stock exchanges purchased the option exchanges and then they cut the option exchanges over onto the stock technology platforms Um, and then over that time they started to roll out um you know the stock uh market has certain business models one's called the maker taker system which is a system of of um you know where where, uh, two individuals trade and one gets a, a rebate we'll talk about that maybe later in the interview, and but the other guy pays a fee, and you start getting all this. I, I thought of it as cross contamination. You um, you got all this um, stock market high frequency trading tradition started kind of molding into, um, or melding I guess, you know, into the uh, you know, into the option space, and then you also had some of these HFT firms which were doing very well start to set up options operations and compete in the options space so in this period of transition i felt um you know that i needed to be ahead of the game and, and so i needed to go build a new um, you know an entirely new business model uh you know originally we were going to go to um basically a hedge fund that was affiliated uh with an investment bank but then um it kind of evolved, and I realized I could go independent. So we set up trading machines, and uh, it was um, basically a high-frequency trading firm for options. We traded. Um, we, uh, you know, we we hired from uh, all you know all, all all the major operations. We tried to get people who had that kind of expertise. I think uh, at our peak we were about 25 people, and um, you know we launched into the market, and we were traded pretty consistently about. Half a percent of the U.S. options market over the lifetime of the firm, you know, when it was actively trading.
1: Yeah, that's that's really impressive that you were doing such high volume. I mean, 0.5 percent of all options trading—that's uh, that's very significant. So that volume, um, just so we understand, that volume was that spread across lots and lots of small trades, or alternatively spread across a few larger trades
2: no yeah spread across lots and lots of small trades uh, you know because of other, actually how the stock market worked we ended up doing a lot more uh you know many more transactions in the in the stock market than in the options market but uh still it was you know definitely um uh as far as like high frequency trading options goes that's we were the closest thing to it um we uh we we specialized in uh in in basically um uh, basically, operating as an informal market maker, very much the the way the high frequency traders now work, uh, where they don't necessarily have market making status or obligations. So we would basically, um, you know, opportunistically provide liquidity or take liquidity in names um, when we identified mispricings, and uh, we, we centered a lot of the business over. A short-term uh, intraday volatility uh, forecasting. And that was kind of our bread and butter.
1: Okay. Um, kind of. Yeah, so so to summarize, where was your edge at trading machines? Was it essentially the speed of execution? Was it the number of trades? Um, or was it the complexity? Because you were running over a million lines of code. So I'd love it if you could expand on this, please. Well, the the edge, I mean, I don't
2: really think of speed as an edge um, in, in the tr- you know in the way people talk about it uh, you know uh, speed is basically used uh, when you have um, you know a competitive uh, relationship with other traders out there so if you guys are both triggered by the same events to try to go after the same trade then then speed matters because you need to be faster than the other guy um, you know that will tend to uh, occur in, in the option space uh you know if a stock moves the options the theoretical values change uh and there'll be a race to to kind of hit the quotes that are stale out in the market or resting orders uh and then there you know the, the market makers who are you know and it high frequency option traders everyone's trying to hit the mispriced options but they're also trying to cancel and update the their their quotes which are you know stale so there's you know that's kind of the arms race that we have um i don't really think uh, in any kind of efficient market that that becomes your bread and butter um you know you have to have something more than that um you know we focus quite a bit as i said on on uh, on the volatility piece um in uh, this you know this is the implied volatility uh we um in many ways, that can be a, a surrogate uh, for supply and demand, and the options for for basically buying pressure or selling pressure. So we tended to um, develop models where we could get the right on the right side of that pressure uh, to either buy or sell options. And um, you know, the other thing that most people don't understand about um, the options business, which is really um, absolutely necessary and central to the way. Uh, you know we we get an edge is is really, you know, we'll call it risk management, but it doesn't mean the same thing it means in let's say, um, you know the stock or futures world. Risk management and options uh, is is really about um, uh, finding the most effective and cheapest um, hedge for for um, for previous trades that you've done. Um, and that tends to to mean, that every single trade you do, uh, has a, um, uh, has a component of it in which it's either, um, you know, uh, beneficial to, to you from a risk management perspective or, or the opposite or, in, or increases your risk. And, uh, you know, uh, options are, uh, you know, can, can change tra- quite dramatically over the day. And if you do not Actually manage your your portfolio, which will be very complex, uh, with incredible precision. You basically c- will not be able to to um, to lock in or, or realize any of the the alpha that you have in a way that isn't exposed to um, you know what, what we call adverse selection or slippage.
1: Okay, okay, that's really interesting. Now, the Wall Street Code, the documentary that you were featured in. At one point, the voiceover said, and I'm paraphrasing here, you had written an algorithm that would generate a guaranteed income. So I'm really curious to know, how is this possible to guarantee an algorithm would always win? Um, these, you know, a lot of the stuff that has hit the,
2: the media or, or you know, that's in a documentary, it, it well, um, there's always some kind of translation there, okay? So, you know the the this guaranteed um, uh, profit uh, that is talked about in the uh, in in various manner in the in the let's say the HFT industry or the where I was in the high frequency option industry. You know, uh, even if you have some type of um, pure arbitrage, you still have execution risk, right? Um, you know, so. Um, this kind of guaranteed return, uh, isn't really, um, the right way to describe the activity, but, uh, there are strategies that, um, with, with, if they have very high execution certainty, uh, and very, um, aggressive and tight and precise risk management can basically approximate, um, a, um, you know, a, a they, they will appear to have, um, a very stable, um, return and the, and the positions that they create are, uh, you know, in our case, we, we did actually try to target, uh, positions that were, um, uh, you know, approximations of, of, uh, of what would be riskless portfolios. So, you know, there, there's a tradition to target that, but that doesn't mean you, you actually can achieve it. As I said, the execution um, risk the you know, the, the risk that you cannot actually execute the, the legs of, of the strategy effectively and costly and cost effectively. You know, that, that's the, one of the main things that's going to stop any strategy that's going after a guaranteed profit. Uh, but, you know, when you look at these businesses, uh, uh, when, when they're, uh, the types of strategies that, you know, that, that, that statement may have referred to, uh, they will tend to have very high um I don't know if your listeners are familiar with uh, metrics like the Sharpe ratio, but you know it's a measure of um, risk over return versus some type of uh, benchmark. Uh, and th- those me- those metrics for HFT business will be very very high, and uh, the PL distributions, um, you know, lots and lots of trades. You'll you know, they, they they will look. Uh, you know, many of the businesses. Um, Will, will look like a st- literally, literally very close to a straight line in terms of profit. Um, you know that was the case actually for the portfolio we ran at, at uh, Trading Machines uh, on a gross basis, but um, uh, gross P and L, you know, looked very, very. Uh, the slope of that was pretty, um, pretty straight. But the um, uh, we had a lot of difficulty with fee structure and uh, the fees, uh, you know, had quite a. a um, adverse impact on us, especially uh, the fees associated with uh, stock trading and hedging.
1: Okay. Very interesting. That was well said, Haim. Thanks for really explaining that to us. Around 2009, trading machines began to lose money. Um, So, tell us about this time. I believe it was about 12 months before you even got to the root of the problem. So, what was going on? What was what was that time like for you during those twelve months?
2: Well, it was interesting. I mean, we, you know, the, what happened? Um, so we were basically building the year that regulation NMS was was rolled out, and um, that that uh, body of regulation really restructured how the the U.S. stock market operated. I guess it did also apply the options market, but um, it had uh, features. Um, that uh, were, were basically problematic for high frequency trading strategies in the stock universe. So what happened uh, is that you know in 2000, from 2007 to 2009, the exchanges basically started to create features, primarily features that were requested by high frequency trading firms in the stock market. And these, um, uh, you know, they, in, in particular, they created um, uh, order types and and what I call order matching engine called practices. They basically modified the order handling of of the, of the stock exchanges, and the period of most of probably you know some of the most intense modification was over the period of um, of two thousand nine. Now my firm, um, had launched, uh, trading in August of 2008 and we, um, you know, we launched, you know, you know, a month before the financial crisis struck. And then, you know, after that you had just incredible market conditions and volatilities that were 200% volatilities. You know, you had, you had such, um, anomalous markets and, uh, and there was a lot of, uh, dislocation and a lot of edge. So I didn't not really appreciate or, 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 or was that, I was not really able to witness the, um, uh, c- called the, 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 nuances and how the stock market had changed. I mean, I, I do, do actually remember it was December, um, 2008 was the first time I started seeing odd behavior, um, in, in, in my stock executions. And, um, You know what I did is I I started to avoid uh, venues that um, that I thought were just toxic, right? That you know that were the the the, you know lots of us in the in the business um, are are trying to trade against order flow that isn't informed, and you know some venues have a different composition than others. And and my initial thought was, hey, these these particular uh, look. Uh, trading venues are are toxic. And I basically tuned my system to trade uh, on the venues that were, um, you know, that look better. And uh, what happened is uh, in in the end, I I started, you know, having more and more of my trading concentrated in only a few venues. So I had kind of learned that that most of the market was toxic. And what had actually happened over that period of time is the exchanges were modifying how their systems worked and, and, and introducing features that basically supercharged the profits of these high-frequency stock traders. Um, They were, these features were introduced without adequate disclosure. And, you know, the, the exchanges were in no way, uh, you know, they, they would visit all their clients, but they weren't talking about the the high-frequency trading features with any, you know, with the firms that looked like, um, they were the counterparty to high-frequency traders. So, you know, we, we uh, must have looked like, um, you know, uh, what an exchange would call customer, right? Whereas um, certain high-frequency trading firms in stock would be thought of as liquidity providers. So, so customers were basically not really informed about these uh, order types. And, um, you know, the exchanges would come in and give you all this information on how they operated, but just miss... You know, they, they just kind of skip over anything that had to do with the, the kind of features of high frequency traders were actually requesting at that time. So what happened, um, it's kind of a long story here, but what happened in, in May 2009 is that the last exchange in the U.S. Uh, basically modified its um, order handling to accommodate HFT. And that, that was direct edge. Um, they introduced... Um, an order type called hide and slide, and uh, what I try to explain to people is when you introduce a particular order type, it doesn't just have features in its in its intrinsic to its to itself and how it operates, but the 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 um, the the, uh, the the code the the you know the um, actual code in terms of how the electronic exchange works and how it's order matching engine works, has to be modified and has to define how does that order type interact with the other order types, right? Uh, and that's something uh, I've tried to explain in my book, The Problem HFT. Um, it's not just, you know, that, that that you know metaphorically the exchanges are introducing a queen onto the checkerboard. They're also defining how that queen interacts with other pieces. And it turned out that the pieces or the order types I were using were heavily disadvantaged by the, in in the interaction with the hide not slide order type. So really what happened is we just started bleeding and it was, it looked, it looked like um, my guys rolled out a bug. I was actually um, at a, my sister's uh, wedding in late May, 2009. I was gone, gone for a week and I came back and the stock trading had had you know changed and and to a point where we were basically making money in the options and hemorrhaging all of it into the stock market and it was quite perplexing because the a change like that is usually triggered by a um, software release or a mistake that a, that the trading firm does so it didn't really you know I've been in the business for uh, uh, you know, over a decade at that time. And, and it just was not clear to me, uh, you know, there, there wasn't like, uh, you know, there wasn't like a circular or, or, you know, any type of information that had been, uh, delivered to me specifically that, uh, had indicated that that exchange should change their market structure. Uh, you know, there are, there's, uh, somewhat of a paper trail, but, uh, it was such an extreme change and um, it wasn't, uh, you know, really communicated to the client, to the to the members of the exchange in the way that it should have been. So I'm sitting there and it, it just didn't occur to me that the that this type of uh, it really looked like a bug, you know, hemorrhaging this this money uh, was actually just the exchange redefining how my orders interacted with hft orders and literally just rolling out code that changed how my trading operated
1: okay okay yeah so i appreciate you explaining that for us um that's that's really insightful and shortly after you spoke out about this and revealed your concern to the sec why did you decide to blow the whistle on these secretive hft order types
2: uh, that's a long story I didn't really know what I was getting into <laughs> uh, there's a, first of all I'll just say there's a tradition um, you know uh, uh, Blair Hall founder of whole trading you know he uh, he went on the record and and called out um, uh, the uh, nasdaq market maker collusion and what was known as the Christie Schultz scandal uh, that was a um yeah you know, a, a an episode in in kind of stock market history where NASDAQ market makers were were colluding and keeping spreads artificially wide, and uh, a um a pair of academic researchers discovered this, and uh, wrote a paper why do um, these market makers avoid um, odd prices really uh, is what they what they had discovered and you know why are they skipping every other price and and keeping their and the spreads. artificially wide because of that um and turned out that you know they were colluding and and the the industry was actually fined i think a a, a, close to a billion dollars in penalties uh because of this activity and blair was one of the few first insiders to actually go on the record and i think it was in the la times and actually uh you know note a particular name and that uh you know uh he, he basically got a phone call from the, the market maker telling him to get out of his game, and he went on the record on it. Um, another example uh, is the one of the great um, kind of leaders in the options industry, Tom uh, uh for five years um, was um, lobbying heavily and very vocal about eliminating a loophole that allowed Queue jumping, the same kind of stuff I turned in an op- in the stock market. There was actually a kind of a, a, a queue jumping loophole in the options market where, where um, uh, we, call, we call them customer market makers or barnacles, but basically uh, professional traders learned that they could masquerade as retail customers and get um, customer priority and leap ahead of the other market makers. And uh, he was very very um as i said vocal and um i think has uh, deserves a lot of the credit for what eventually happened was uh in 2010 the options market basically um, created a solution for this problem and and uh, eliminated it by by creating what's known as the professional customer designation so basically if you trade too much and you try to take advantage of that loophole too much. The loophole still does exist. Uh, you actually have to change your status and then you no longer can exploit the loophole. So here, are, you know, the two names, you know, big big names in my, in, in my industry are both associated with uh, significant market reform. Uh, of course, both of them, uh, you know, uh, ha- were... Uh, Able to do that because they had very very successful, uh, you know, operations. And um, uh, I think uh, you know what was different about me is I decided to call out these issues, uh, you know, maybe in the same style I thought as these other great leaders did. But I, I called them out after my firm failed, so <laughs> I wasn't in the same kind of position that they were, and I didn't realize how important it was to. Um, you know, to be, uh, I mean, this has taken up um, five years of my life now and no way did I think that was going to happen.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it was a very bold move and I really want everyone listening to understand how bold of a move that was. I mean, were you at all concerned about your reputation or what the repercussions might've been? I mean, even on a personal safety level, because I imagine there were many people who were upset by you doing this
2: yeah it's funny it it was bold i mean i think again uh, i was kind of insulated i didn't realize how insulated i was from other parts of the industry by getting um you know that experience in the ivory tower um i I didn't really understand uh and you've probably seen you know last few years been quite a number of of uh, major penalties and fines Uh, i didn't realize how um prevalent it was across the industry to, um, exploit the gray and, and to often cross into the black lines, uh, you know, between, uh, unethical behavior and let's say legal behavior. Uh, it was not, uh, you know, whole trading was all about being smarter than the other guy. And I kind of grew up on that. I actually, there was a former colleague of mine who, who said to me, he says, It ruined us. We weren't ready for the real world where it's shadier. (laughs) So, um, you know, I guess um, uh, I I didn't actually realize what I was going up against until I, you know, had already already disclosed this stuff to uh, Scott Patterson, who, you know, started reporting on it in the Wall Street Journal. Um, You know, the the information I gave, you know, resulted in in extensive investigations, uh, you know, that took um, four years. Um, You know, the direct edge case, direct edge was eventually um, fined, the largest fine in US history against an exchange, which is $14 million uh, for improperly or inadequately disclosing their order types, right? Um, And, uh, you know, there's this long, long path um, which, which, you know, was successful, uh, in the end, um, you know, that, that case, for example, the direct edge case, it was, um, uh, uh, I w I was, uh, informed that that was the most sophisticated case that the sec had ever done in terms of, um, you know, complexity and sophistication of, of the, uh, abuses. So, um, th- this whole process, and, and my opponents, uh, you know, it started out as as I thought I was going against a, a small s- segment of the industry that was, you know, taking advantage of, of, of um, the system. And I, I was convinced at the time that it would have been discovered, you know, by the regulators. And, you know... Uh, Halfway in, I realized that I, I, I didn't go against a small part of the industry. I went against the dominant <laughs> practices in the industry. So, um, uh, and uh, again, you know, you, you when you do something like this, um, uh, you, you, you take a shot out and, you know, you throw, metaphorically, you're just throwing a fist out there. You don't actually know who you're hitting. Uh, and you're right um, that... As uh, you know, as you get feedback, uh, and in you know, in my case, I, I went against some very, very um, uh, powerful, entrenched uh, people. You know, you look at this and you're like, "Did I make the right move? You know, did I did I, am I doing the right thing?" And you, you get a little bit of uh, nervous and anxious, especially when the um, industry. I mean yeah you get you get more heat and more negative feedback the, the, the you know the the more significant the issue is and the more ac- you know if you're if you're right you're going to get trapped for 5 years i didn't realize that but that's a very common experience for whistleblowers uh, you know if you're wrong or or it doesn't matter that much then it just goes you know you, you might report it but no you know it doesn't result in any any big action in, in my case um, yeah, you know, there must have been somewhere between forty and fifty regulatory filings that exchanges were forced to uh, uh, provide to accurately describe how all the HFT features operated. Um, you know, it was it was, a, it was a it was a it was a war. It was a you know. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, you know, I I, I don't recommend it. <laughs> but uh, you know, I gotta, you know, it's not something I'd recommend other people to do. But, um, you know, I I guess, you know, how did I get through it? Um, I just have a a property, I guess it helped me out here. It's when I started to get nervous about what I was doing, I kind of doubled down on the, you know, trying to prove I was right. And that meant that I kind of outworked a lot of people on the other side. Um, the, the precision of my, um, information basically put so it was you know i i provided so much detail and 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 accurate information that needed to be looked at carefully by regulators what i believe happened is that that just created so much heat on the practices that they weren't really able to mount um any kind of opposition uh you know to me i mean uh other whistleblowers will get heavily smeared. Um, that didn't really happen with me and, and it was definitely done, you know, privately, but, you know, I didn't have to go through, um, a big, um, you know, public battle where exchanges were, um, saying statements to, to kind of disprove me publicly. And I'll give you, um, uh, an example, um, Uh, let me think. Uh, I'm forgetting actually who the, uh, uh, there's a Nobel laureate. I'm just forgetting, uh, Mm. his name. Um, but in the Christie Schultz case, NASDAQ hired very, very reputable people to, um, basically attack the opposition, you know, with, uh, and, and, you know, and it was complete, they were completely wrong, but, you know, um, uh, the, these people that were hired, these experts, but they really made it very painful for people who were, um, trying to turn in those practices. And, and in my case, um, yeah, I, I mean, it was very public. There was, let's say a debate, but, you know, um, I mean, yeah, yeah. sorry. I mean, you yeah, know, it was, it's a long, uh, it was a, it was a long process, you know, but, um,
1: I survived it. Oh that's awesome. So to summarize to summarize the the investigation, I mean cuz this was a huge investigation, what was the outcome? Like just to summarize it for us, what was the outcome and what's been achieved or changed since? Well,
2: you know the the what what the the main thing that was achieved you know, with with you know, you can can really think of the investigations, and you know, there were multiple ones because there are multiple targets. Um, uh, the, the, when when the uh, enforcement division looks at these issues, um, they they you know need to come to a place where they determine. Um, for, you know, first of all, they have to look at the accuracy of the allegations, right? But then after that, they have to look at um, you know, is this unethical behavior or is it illegal behavior, right? And they have to, um, lots of things I work on, uh, the, you know, in, with the regard to, um, call it regulation of high, high-frequency trading, uh, it, it's not actually clear, um, you know, where that, that, that line is between unethical and um, uh, illegal. And, and that takes a, a lot of very talented um, people with securities law background to determine. And, uh, the, um, the thing is, uh, the, the, the SEC enforcement division is, is only going to be pursuing violations of securities law. So if the law is not, um, uh, you know, violated, uh, or, you know, then, uh, or maybe the law is not defined, you know, is, is not defined well enough to address the issue. Uh, then it basically becomes a policy issue. So a lot of the things that I turned in ended up um, becoming, um, you know, a, a policy issue, um, and and everything really f- kind of revolved around disclosure. So you had the uh, Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations uh, did an order type audit where, you know, they had all the exchanges um, uh, sub- submit very extensive, um, you know, information on, on how they made order types, you know, how they disclosed them, the whole process, which ones existed. And that was actually completely, you um, a separate initiative from the enforcement investigations. And then um, about a year ago, Chairman Mary Jo White, um, uh, she uh, mandated that all of the exchanges um, use uh, uh, last year, uh, this is uh, 2014, um, she basically said that the exchanges needed to reassess all the regular, to, regulatory filings and determine um, if their order types were 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 accurately disclosed, and also to assess if the order types were uh, operating as intended, you know, and if there weren't unintended consequences. It was, it was a very kind of also very significant um, initiative, and uh, most of the exchanges. Um, were, were extremely responsive and put out a um, uh, a, a lot of revisions and, and clarified how, how the order types worked, changed certain features. Um, you know, there's many of the issues that I was concerned about were, were addressed through disclosure. You know, I thought, some of them would be ripped out that were approved. I was kind of shocked that you know I've been very critical of queue jumping behavior and and those that was actually approved. But um you know what I learned through the process is that uh, uh the, the the SEC is actually pretty liberal um, in terms of uh, allowing different types of uh, be uh, called functionality on exchanges. They just demand that there's uh, adequate disclosure, right? Okay. So that's you know so and in, in, in the case of um, direct edge that's a case where um, you know that ex, that exchange um, basically was, was not responsive enough and had significant um, lapses in their disclosure and and then you know I think I think if they had been you um, Had addressed the issues earlier and had been more cooperative, maybe you wouldn't have seen the same result.
1: Sure. Okay.
3: Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more.
1: So Haim, let's change gears and bring this back to a retail level. I mean, because I know we're on some time constraints here, but the big question does HFT affect retail traders?
2: Yeah, well, HFT in, in general uh, affects retail traders. Uh, yeah. I would actually lean on the side of a slight positive effect. And I think um, what retail traders don't understand, and I really don't like the narrative that's been going on um in the in the uh, you know the, the market structure debate or the flash boys debate, uh, high frequency traders um, tend you know not to to trade in in, in uh, on venues where they ha- they are able to trade with with retail. I mean retail orders do do not um, you know market order retail market orders do not tend to go to the major exchanges. And when I mean that, I mean there there are Reports that the retail brokers file um, six or six reports, and, and you will see uh, that the, you know that exchanges often will have uh, a reported zero, you know, not a single market order was sent <laughs> to that exchange. Uh, and retail traders, you know, they send a lot of market orders. So um, those market orders they they don't go to the exchange where the HFT is trading. They they often do not go to a dark pool. They often go to what we call a, an internalizer, or a wholesale market maker, or, or um, off-exchange market maker. And what does that mean? Basically, means that those orders are bought and um, they are traded. You know, uh, these these off-exchange market makers will trade against the th- those orders, those retail market orders, with really without competition. So, how does HFT affect? that type of trading. Well, the upstairs market makers have to match the best price on the exchange, right? That's, you know, they're basically sitting on the sidelines and they get to trade at the prices they see that the that really the high frequency traders are posting. So the more aggressive and the tighter the the that, that, that uh, high frequency traders trade, the, you know, the more that they tighten markets. They're actually squeezing the mar the margins of the of the upstairs market makers, so that's why I say there's a little bit of a positive impact the um and and i know this from experience that the when the high frequency traders came in um the upstairs market makers were had had actually quite a difficult time uh and, and continue to do so because the high frequency traders tightened the markets and and often would tighten them to uh, the, to a point where the upstairs market maker couldn't make that much money if he matched the high-frequency trader's price. So that's probably not what you would expect, right? I mean, I've been extremely critical of HFT, but you know, uh, I will say that part of the reason they can trade so tight is they've got all those super advantages that that, that uh, cause me grief, right? <laughs> so, so um, in a way, retail's benefiting from the fact that. Um,
1: firms like mine were, were, were basically abused okay so something you mentioned in there which I just want to um, dive into a little bit deeper and not skim over it too much is the the how does the payment for order flow works could you just explain that to us in a little more detail
2: yeah it's a uh, very old practice um, it's getting a lot of attention now we actually are seeing some uh, class action lawsuits targeting it Uh you know, before I explain how it, how it uh, operates, I'll, I'll say that one of the major innovators of payment for order flow is Bernie Madoff. So, you know, that's kind of the origin. <laughs> um, what uh, what what he did, and, and other firms in, in in that space is they um, uh, they basically b- buy retail order. Um, literally by you know uh, through a kickback um a payment for what we call it uh and and from retail brokers so they say look don't send your order to the exchange send it to me i'll match the exchange's price and i'll i'll pay you for it and if you think about that payment it's kind of like a profit sharing if you think about it right they're based the market makers giving up part of the profit he would make on the spread and giving it back to the broker as a kickback. Um, you know why would a um, a um, uh, off exchange market maker do that? You know why you know, why do they do that? Well, uh, it, it all has to do with this concept of uh, what we call adverse selection. But basically, uh, when when you trade out in the market and you're posting your quotes, you you basically are giving all of the the sharks in the in the market all the other fast firms you know the option to to trade you against you when when you're wrong maybe you're not fast enough updating your quotes you know uh maybe you're providing liquidity to a huge uh you know let's say a large pension that's gonna that their order's gonna move the market and market makers don't want to trade against order flow that moves the price against them because then they just lose money So retail is very, very um, attractive because it tends to be small and and smaller orders don't move the market as frequently as large orders. Uh, But the other thing about it, and I know retail guys probably don't like this, but uh, statistically, um, it it, it looks um, uninformed. I mean, you can look at large... um, Volume of trades of retail traders, and you can see, uh, you know, what is the, uh, you know, wh- what is the kind of average alpha or you know average um, information, uh, that, you know, the you know kind of edge information, I just call it right, um, that that these orders have, and the answer is zero. You know, it's near zero. Uh, so when you trade against a retail guy, you you make very close to the actual spread. When you trade against a pension or a mutual fund, uh, you actually get a lot of, um, you know, adverse selection or bleed, and that will look like, you know, that will that that's basically price movement that erodes your profit. You don't make the full spread when you trade against other types of counterparties. So that you know, it's it's actually quite simple. It's been, it sounds complicated, but it's just. You know, be, I'm will be. i going to say it again in a, in a very simple way. It's like, you know, the way I've I'm, I'm actually looked kind of down on these guys. It's like there's an upstairs market maker. He can't compete in the regular market that well. So he basically buys orders from, you know, buys dummies. Uh, you know, he wants dummies to trade with, and he basically p- pays brokers to send them the dummies. Um, these firms... Um, that have been engaged in this have had uh you know many of them have gone under uh, in the last 15 years and you know made off so like uh, obviously was one of the biggest and that whole entire business collapsed uh it, it actually was rebranded as surge trading i think and still went under uh these firms um you know were, were really unable to develop um market making operations that uh could compete in the um Uh, In the regular exchanges, you know, like, you know, the HFTs basically were more sophisticated compared to the these kind of upstairs uh, market makers. So, you know, I I do give credit to the HFTs for, um, you know, being able to trade, even though I'm very, you know, really against the cheats and the unlevel playing field. um, You know, they are on. able to to make markets uh in the in the exchanges aggressively and that's that's good otherwise we just have these other guys just cherry picking off exchange and then we'd have wide spreads it
1: would be worse okay so just to wrap this up for us is the retail trader disadvantaged in any way by the way that the payment for order flow works well disadvantaged
2: um you know there, there there's there's definitely uh, arguments to be made that um, uh, that the that the order handling is not uh, optimal and that is 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 really um, you know there's uh, certain firms that are now have lawsuits against them because they um, handled orders to uh, basically maximize the kickbacks right well the problem with maximizing the kickbacks. Uh, I'll give you a very clear, actually, example here. Um, if I go to, if I'm, a, if I'm a retail broker and I go to Market Maker, Market Maker says he's gonna, you know, he's gonna pay me a quarter penny um, per share for, for my, my, my orders, right? Um, he could actually give me a kickback or if, if I was looking to get my customers the best execution, I might say, hey, don't give me the kickback. Just give me a quarter penny price improvement. Give me a better price for every single share you trade, right? So these brokers actually have a choice. They can actually negotiate to get you a better price, or they can just, you know, take the kickback and pocket it. And what they do is they they know that the regulators are um, concerned about the level the the amount of price improvement. So what they'll tend to do is give a, you know a de minimis price improvement. They'll they'll basically say, look, give me a little bit of price improvement on average versus you know what what might have been available on exchanges, and then give me all the rest of it as a kickback, right? Uh, on top of that, they will basically as i said send orders to either trading venues and it's complicated i don't want to get to all of it but basically trading venues also have uh, rebates or kind of a payment for a flow arrangement when when a when a broker basically maximizes the um kickbacks that they get um you know not only are they not passing on the value of those kickbacks to their um traders in the form of price improvement but the places that have the highest kickbacks tend to be the places um especially if you uh, we're talking about trading venues where um which are the most expensive to trade for the liquidity uh you know for the for the other side of the trade so what that basically means is you don't get filled as uh as uh, as, as as frequently if you try to maximize uh, uh, rebates and kickbacks, so so very simply here, retail traders should be getting, you know, significant um, price improvement. They're not getting it. Uh, they, you know, the the way things are routed now, uh, are, are are probably dramatically reducing their fill rates for orders that they post. So if you're a retail trader and you post orders and you don't get filled frequently, what you should know is that your broker um, has a lot of options for trying to get that order done. And, and if you're not getting filled, maybe your order your broker is not sending those orders to places where they're, they're likely to get filled because he's trying to maximize kickback. So these are all the details uh, about it. But the other thing I'll point out is is the, the the all these payments and kickbacks I'm talking about? They are very significant. Some brokers will get close to like fifty percent of their uh, you know net income from from this these types of uh, payments. Um, but they um the, you know these um these these brokers are basically uh charging commissions that are ridiculously high when compared to the kickbacks. So, you know, I guess I would say um, that the the commissions are even more egregious for many of the retail brokers than all of the, the funny business I just spoke about. Um, and th- and th- there's a deep irony there because uh, the reason why the SEC permits all the kickbacks is they... The argument is it's supposed to reduce the commission rates. That's the whole reason they're permitted. And so, for a trader to pay high commissions, retail trader get you know very little price improvement, and have their uh, you know and have uh, their orders have lower fill rates because they're routed. Uh, incorrectly, and for their broker to be getting you know 50% of their net income by monetizing the that traders order is basically from my perspective the retail broker is basically just stealing money from the um, uh, from the trader and what should he do there's the an answer the trader should move to um, uh, there are certain um, firms that will you know some firms charge Eight or nine dollars for a hundred share order, and, and others charge a dollar or less. And uh, retail traders, I'm just shocked why anybody would go to the um, traditional retail brokers when there are um, firms that cater to semi-pro kind of people. You know, uh, you know, if if I'm going to open up a retail account, I'm going to open it up at a uh, uh, at a at a broker that caters to high volume active traders who are demanding that their costs
1: are less than a dollar for every 100 shares. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is a a fascinating subject. And I mean, this whole conversation has been really fascinating. I know we could keep going on for, for much longer yet, but I know you've got to run. So, I mean, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate you coming on uh, before you do go, can you share with listeners where they can go to find out more about you, and where can they connect with you?
2: Oh uh, yeah, well, first thing you should do if uh, if you're interested in any of this stuff, I, I tend to tweet quite frequently. Uh, I usually tweet about um, you know the the develop the regulatory developments, uh, you know, firms that are getting hit, and and some of the things that are being argued about in the market structure community. But uh, you know, H A I M. B-O-D-E-K, and Bodek. Uh, that's my handle on Twitter. Uh, I have a website, HaimBodek.com. Uh, there are a lot of resources there. There's also a link there to uh, a, um, a research um, site that I have that has lots of videos. And uh, uh, it's got DecimusCapitalMarkets.com. But you, it's best to just get to it by going to HaimBodek.com and then clicking the link. Uh, but uh, the Decimus site has uh, videos and white papers. You know, probably twenty videos on there or something. Uh, you can sign up for free. Um, There's a little, uh, you know, and and I'll just I just approve anybody who signs up, so there shouldn't be any issue. And um, uh, let me do another plug, also. Uh, just other things. If you want to hear my story, Scott Patterson wrote, uh, or you, you want to read about it, Scott Patterson wrote a book called Dark Pools. I'm about you know, a quarter of that book. It tells the whole trading machine story. Uh, there's the, the documentary, The Wall Street Code, um, uh, which I, I'm featured in, and also, and that's on YouTube. There's also a documentary, uh, um, the, the New Wolves of Wall Street, um, which I've got, a, you know, my story's also told in that. Um, and lastly, I've got two um, market structure books uh, one the problem of HFT that's uh, you know what a lot of people go to after they reading they read Dark Pools, and then we recently released a new book uh, called The Market Structure Crisis, which really talks about uh, all the issues, not just the high-frequency trading issue.
1: Excellent, yeah, very cool. And I'll make sure to add links to all of those um, at chatwithtraders.com. Um, definitely, guys, read Dark Pools, awesome book. I've read it. And The Wall Street Code, also highly recommend that. I mean, I've watched that probably four or five times. Um, Such a great documentary and, um, yeah, you'll really enjoy it. So, Haim, thank you very much for doing this. Um, I hope to have you on again sometime soon because there's much more we could speak about. But, um, yeah, thank you and uh, let's talk again soon.
0: Okay, thanks. You've come to the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but don't worry, more great episodes are on the way. To stay updated with each great new episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, and we'd love it if you leave us a rating and review. We'll see you next time
3: on Chat with Traders.